The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, when you're in China and you go to the market or you go to a restaurant and you order fish on the market, most people assume that the fish comes from the local shores. I mean, you, th- you see fishermen in Shanghai or in Guangzhou, and they're coming in and they're dropping their, their, their catch off for the day. And I think most people have no concept for what the supply chain is of the fish that actually ends up on their table. And to be fair, I don't think anybody in most countries really understands the global supply chain of anything that they consume. So I don't think Chinese consumers here are any different. But what's interesting about fish in particular is that the volume, the quantities of fish being consumed in a country as large as China are such that it is impossible for China to sustain itself on its own supply of fish. So it has to go further and further afield in order to, uh, to, to, to find and catch fish. And what it's doing is it's using something called the distant fishing fleets. And this, these are these massive industrial-sized trawlers which go all over the world off the coast of Argentina, off the coast of Mozambique, and of course, off the coast of Ghana. We've talked about this in previous shows with activists. And what they're doing is they are scooping up vast amounts of seafood. And what it is, it's really something that is terrifying because the quantities simply are not sustainable in the current environment that we're doing it. And it's being done oftentimes in questionable legal circumstances. And what we're learning now in places like West Africa is that Chinese entities, and I don't really know who they are, are engaging local fishermen to basically undermine governance and some of the fishing rules and regulations. And that's what we're going to focus on today. But Kobus, it really does bring up this question of understanding the supply chain of where our food and our products come from, particularly as it relates to food and fish. Yes, and that's very difficult, I think, in any country. Um, Some countries have systems set up for sustainable seafood um, where you you can track, apparently, you know, kind of what, how things were caught, in which circumstances and where. Uh, But those systems aren't, uh, you know, infallible. Um, And in places like China, they frequently don't exist at all. Um, So what you, you, you don't see what the environmental conditions are of the fish, but you also don't see what the, what this local uh, community impact was of that fishing, you know, who used to fish there and who can't fish there anymore because of the massive trailers that are now fishing there. Um, And what the, the wider kind of social implications are in places like Ghana. So Ghana is going to be our focus today on the discussion in part because What's happening there is more critical and more acute than in many other parts of Africa. But there are similar stories that are unfolding, again, in southern Africa, in other parts of West Africa. And for more on this, we're, we're really just so thrilled to have on the program for the first time uh, Kofi Agaboga, who is the executive director of Enampueno, which is uh, which is a great name in fun, the Fanti dialect, which means our coast. And that's an NGO that focuses on conservation, governance, coastal community ag- advocacy, and better management of coastal and marine resources. And he joins us on the line from Ghana. Kofi, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. 
It's a pleasure to have you. I'd like you first to start our discussion, and because this is a new topic for a lot of our listeners, and is just to introduce us to the concept of what psycho means, and what is psycho, and why is it important in, in this discussion of fishing in Ghana? Thank you very much. Uh, in times past, in the early 70s, perhaps, there were a few distant water fleets that were manned by Japanese or Taiwanese or anybody from Asia who is interested in fish. And uh, they had access agreements with our countries and they were able to fish in our waters. What happened was that any time our local canoe fishermen saw them on the high seas, they were either dumping some fish or fish that they didn't like uh, they they tried to give to the local fishermen. Now, uh, whilst dumping, the local fishermen thought that uh, this fish was also good fish for them. But the uh, Japanese, in the Japanese language, it was bad fish, and therefore they call it saite. Saite is spelled as a S-A-I-T-E, which is a uh, good in the Japanese lingo. Uh, sorry, bad in Japanese lingo, but uh, Ghanaian said, well, it is good for them. So they said then it is psycho, you know, good, fee, uh, good, fee, good in Japanese is psycho. And therefore, they started giving out this fish to local fishermen in exchange of, for water, vegetables, uh, well, anything that uh, will make them sustain themselves on the water. So therefore, it was a butter trade where fish is given to locals and locals exchange it for some form of uh, uh, essential commodities. So then the trade continued and the business was born. Uh, initially, it wasn't a, a problem, but uh, coming down to the early 2000s where the business began to flourish, where now people saw opportunity to make money out of uh, this kind of uh, trade, uh, money started exchanging hands. Today, it is a very big business, running into millions of dollars a year. And when I say millions, it gets to about uh, 100 million plus a year. And this money is not seen by anybody except those who uh, give their money to the trollers or the trollers themselves receiving that money and using it for other people. So that is the best explanation I can give for the psycho trade. So the idea is that that the, the it used to be this kind of barter trade and now it's essentially turned into a full-on economy where where people fish illegally or catch what they shouldn't be shouldn't be catching and then sell it on to the canoes um, and it becomes almost untraceable by authorities. Am I, am I getting that correct? You're getting it correct, but if I can explain further, uh, the trollers are licensed to troll bottom, and therefore they're supposed to get high-priced fish like uh, the groupers, the snappers, uh, some of the sparrows, octopuses, uh, uh, shrimps, crabs, and what have you, those high-value fish. But now they found a way of not trolling the bottom, 
the trawled midwater to surface water to get the fish that uh, local people normally catch uh, on the surface, that is the small pelagics, and then they sell this fish back to fishermen who are in that need of fish. So just to give some sense of the context here, for a small country like Ghana, uh, about 100,000 metric tons of fish were landed through Saiko in 2017, and that was worth, as you said, tens of millions of dollars, about $50 million. So for an economy the size of Ghana, that is a huge amount uh, of money, and and obviously 100,000 metric tons is a lot. Let's talk about the Chinese involvement here. Uh, Chinese, by by no means, as you mentioned, are the only ones behaving this. But it seems to be that the Chinese distant fishing fleet is behaving in a way that is on a scale much more significant than other countries. And they've also adapted their methods in some ways to to make it more difficult to enforce uh, anti-psycho types of measures. Talk to us a little bit about the role of the Chinese in the psycho trade off the coast of Ghana. The... Genesis of this is that uh, if you look at Ghana law, uh, foreigners are forbidden to uh, troll or to operate within the troll industry. It's purely reserved for Ghanaians. But what has happened in the last many years is that they have found a way around the issue where Ghanaian frontmen uh, they could be businessmen, they could be politicians, they could be friends who get the license and then invite the Chinese uh, 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 boats or trawlers into the country. Ostensibly, these boats are owned by the Ghanaians, but uh, largely operated by the Chinese. So uh, there, there are beneficial owners somewhere, but... Uh, the law says that you need to have a 25% uh, foreign crew and a 75% Ghanaian crew. That is very much obeyed, but then the 25% crew, which are largely Chinese, they control what happens at sea. They determine where to fish, what to fish, how to fish, and when to fish. And uh, when this is done, the local uh, operatives of the cycle who are not fishermen but business people have built new boats with uh, retrofitting so that it does not look like the ordinary uh, wooden canoe that uh, they take out to sea. But this is fully covered at the top and inside there serves as a freezing compartment where they pay their monies early on before even the trawler set sail, and when the trawlers get enough fish that they could sell to them, they call them on phone or by whatever means and give them their GPS position. So they, they, they have a, a meeting point, a rendezvous point out there in the sea. So these guys just go out, collect the fish, and also come and sell to make profit at the expense of ordinary, genuine uh, canoe fishermen who have to go out there to hunt for uh, the fish before bringing them to shore. So there is a lot of inequality in terms of uh, who is getting the fish and uh, how they get it. And uh, it, is, it is really problematic. What is the economic effect on the fishing community uh, that are dependent on, the, on this fish? Well, at this time, our 
uh, small pelagic fishery has totally collapsed. The few that is left out there which will repopulate the sea are being harvested by the uh, trawlers and sold to a few uh, fishers. Uh, in one of my d discussions, I said that uh, one psycho uh, canoe will provide 1.5 jobs for lo uh, local fishermen, whereas the ordinary uh, canoe fishermen, if you take one canoe, it provides about 60 jobs. So the ratio is about uh, 1 to 40, and you can understand. Over the last 10 years or so, poverty has doubled in coastal communities. Uh, people are out migrating to other countries because the, a lot of the coastal communities are becoming ghost towns. Fishermen go to sea and come back with empty nets. Uh, their uh, activities are highly subsidized by government, so all these subsidies that is put in the fishery sector, they just burn it off and do not bring anything. Uh, it is creating a lot of uh, economic hardships in the coastal communities. There is squalor, there is uh, prostitution, there is uh, drugs, there's call it anything that could be associated with people who are marginalized. So our coastal communities are not as vibrant as they used to be maybe 20, 30 years ago. So if the stakes are as high as you say they are give for on terms of the economy and obviously providing a, a source of protein and food for significant numbers of people, not just on the coastal communities, but also inland as well, who want to consume local fish. Why isn't the government in Accra doing more to crack down on this and to use their relationship with the Chinese government through Ambassador Edward Bohateng, who's in Beijing, to communicate the importance of cracking down on this and somehow preventing it from happening? Where is the breakdown in the governance part of this that allows this to happen? The law which was passed in the 202, 2002, forbids transshipment of fish at sea. Because of that, anything transshipment is illegal. And talking to government officials, they tell us that uh, they do not support illegality. Therefore, anything that is illegal, they don't uh, have anything to do by way of statistics, by way of monitoring, by way of that. So we as a civil society organization took it upon ourselves and for the first time, we had to do our own research to bring out the issues because hitherto nobody was talking about this kind of trade. Yes, government may have met one or, once or twice to discuss, but uh, there was no in-depth uh, uh, study about what was going on until in 2014 we decided to take a hard look at uh, what is going out on out there. And that is when we began to bring out the issues, talking to those who are doing the cycle fishing, talking to trawlers, talking to local community people, to really get a good hang of what is happening out there. Then, then we decided to uh, do our advocacy, get to government, tell them government that this is what is going on. Again, when we did that, uh, the economic uh, figures we couldn't bring out uh, immediately. So we had to continue working hard, trying to get our calculations right, 
see how much a slab of a cycle fish costs, how many lands a day. So we decided over the years to painstakingly look at all these things. And uh, recently we published a new report which shows that uh, from everything that has happened, they are selling uh, fish at sea to the tune of about uh, 51 million U.S. dollars a year. Uh, and then uh, when it comes to land, those who also sell it out make about uh, 80 million. So anything between 51 and 80 million, uh, the 51 goes to those who are out there on the water. And then the difference is pocketed by these businessmen who I mentioned have found opportunity in this. So it is only recently that we are bringing up the real numbers to let government become acutely aware of the issues that are related to cycle and how much government is losing. Because if they get all these monies at sea, this is uh, local monies or local Ghanaian cities. And if they are Chinese, they have to get some dollars back to the beneficial owner. So it puts pressure on our currency. Uh, the currency is uh, weakening against the dollar by the day because of some of these things that are happening which are unseen. No tax is paid on the revenue that they get from selling these fish on the high seas. The law forbids them anyway. So it becomes a murky and a very complex trade that nobody talks about. Uh, recently, I was showing people the heat map of trawlers on the, off the coast of West Africa. And you know that there is a high concentration of trawlers in Ghana compared to Cote d'Ivoire, compared to Togo, Nigeria, and uh, Guinea, Sierra Leone. Maybe you go out there to Senegal and you see that there is another huge uh, heat map of uh, trawlers in there. But what we have noticed is that Ghana is a country that uh, when these trawlers come in, the licensing fee is so low, and then the benefits are very attractive. There is, it is not a high-risk business where you will be arrested uh, for illegality. So everybody finds a haven here from out there, and most of the trawlers that you have in our waters, about 76 to 80, are all of a, a Chinese origin, and we have gone deeper into finding exactly where it was built, who owned them first, and then uh, how it got to the country. What we realized was that uh, there is one big ship, shipping company that have sent most, if not all, these ships into Ghana, and they still maintain the Chinese names, uh, including where they are coming from. But it is shared among so many different companies. One of the issues that I raise every day is that if you have a, a boat called Kofi 1 and you have another one called Kofi 2, Kofi 3, I don't see why somebody like you out there should also have the same boat, Kofi 4, Kofi 5, Kofi 6. Another person have Kofi 6, Kofi 7, Kofi 8. When you go back and you trace where it is coming from, it's coming from the same company. So it is like you build it, you send it out there, they work, and they bring back money. So the issue of uh, beneficial ownership is something that we have to tackle next and uh, uh, lift the corporate veil to see who are really behind all this, who are fleecing our country of our fish and also destroying our ecology. And the monies that uh, 
should be accruing to the state is going rather to some third persons that we do not know. Well, speaking about that, you know, um, the obviously you make you make a number of recommendations in your report about how the Ghanaian government um, should crack down on on this issue. Um, but how much time do they have to actually get the mechanisms in place before the fish stocks actually completely collapse? Well, I belong to a science technology, science and technology working group, and uh, we have done some stock assessments and. Uh, we are estimating that by 2021, thereabout, our small pelagic stocks will be completely gone. No, that's next year, right? Next year. <laughs> I mean, let's be clear. That's next year it's going to be gone. That's incredible. Yes, so we, we, we mm. are doing our advocacy, pushing government to take some steps to reverse some of these happenings. But, you know, government working is so slow. Uh, they are not uh, at f as fast as uh, civil society would want them to. But uh, the debate is on, and uh, we're trying to let uh, government know that there, there, there are a suite of measures that uh, they have to take to correct the effort. So if you notice or you have read about this, uh, for the first time last uh, month and the month of May, there was a one-month close season for the artisanal fishers to stay at home and not to go to sea at all because they claim that it is August that uh, they get the best, They're, uh, the best fish out of the sea. There are problems there anyway. So what government is saying now is that in August, September, the trawlers will also go on a holiday so that uh, the sea is a little quiet and only locals can be uh, there to fish. But then the problem is that in August, which is the spawning season for the small pelagics, if we allow fishermen to go out there to catch as many as there are, it means that we are still hurting the recovery effort that is going on. And the one would have thought that a, a, clo a close season in August and September for many years to come will begin to get uh, our fishery somehow back on track. In our own estimation, if the close season continues for the next five, six, seven years in the month of August, we should be able to recoup almost uh, 90,000 metric tons of fish that is currently lost to the sea. And uh, the only way we can repopulate the sea is to allow the small pelagics to uh, spawn and then uh, populate the sea. So these are issues that uh, we are doing advocacy on, we are pushing uh, the ministry and the government very hard to listen to us. But then they tell you that there are social issues associated, there are other economic issues. So uh, it has to start gradually. Personally, I was not in favor of uh, the May-June close season, but uh, w the lessons we have learned from this is that at least for the first time in over 20 years that the close season is on the law, fishermen have themselves agreed that they will put down their tools for one month. It is a good beginning, but uh, we don't expect any benefits from it at this time. Perhaps as we move forward, we should be able to adjust the months a little to get to the optimal time when the fishes are breeding. Then we can have some new cohorts 
into the sea. So these are some of the things we are doing uh, to get government to understand that uh, we are working in support of them. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical right now about what the government in Accra will do or not do, just because based on what we've seen over the past, say, five, maybe seven years with the illegal Chinese gold mining in Ghana, where everybody knows the problems there, everybody knows where they are. From time to time, they have these raids where they come in in a very high-profile way, they deport a group of Chinese gold miners, and then things kind of go back to the way they were. And it just doesn't feel like the government is willing to confront China on this. And the reason why the government in China has some stake in this is that, and Kobus, you, I, I don't remember the report that I read on this, but that there is some financial connection between the Chinese government, either through tax breaks or direct subsidies of the distant fishing fleets. And it does strike me as that this is not simply a private enterprise activity, that there is a connection with the Chinese government, and this has to be raised on the government-to-government level. And it just doesn't seem like, from my reading of China-Ghanaian relations, that the, Ghana, the Ghanaian government is willing to do that and willing to really do what's needed to crack down on both illegal Chinese gold mining and illegal Chinese fishing in uh, in its coastal waters. So, you know, am I being too negative there and skeptical, pessimistic, or is that a, an accurate reading of the kind of the politics of the situation right now? I would say that uh, through our advocacy, we are using all means to get to the uh top, the political top. Perhaps these issues have not been articulated very well to the top of the political hierarchy to see how grievous it, it is. Myself... Are listening to you? When you, get, when you sit down in the room, are they listening to what you have to say? Well, it's all out there, but sometimes um, the seriousness that one expects that will... Uh, be applied is not the case yet. And what I would say is that uh, the immediate people who are the government uh, workers or people who work in the ministry must take this thing up first. It has to go to the minister. The minister must go to cabinet and uh, explain these issues. If it is not going that way, then we will have to use the back door. And as I speak to you now, we have called uh, we, the CSOs, have called to meet the Parliamentary Select Committee in charge of fisheries. We have written to the Vice President, and uh, we want to seek audience with him to give him graphic details of what is happening. Sometimes, before it goes through third persons, fourth persons, the issue is slightly diluted, and uh, it doesn't really come up well. So we want to meet these groups, either Parliament that represents the people, or get to the vice president if he has some uh, one hour or so for us to present the issues, show him documentaries, or how, how, how they are stealing our resources and taking them away. It is only when we have the highest political capital and the president or vice president and people like that are making statements in any of their speeches, uh, their speeches. then the press and others will take it up just like it, it, they did for the uh, illegal gold mining, so that in everywhere, everybody is talking about. We have been talking to the press to carry the, the issues as they did uh, with 
the gold mining, but uh, as I speak to you now, occasionally it comes into the press, but the fervor with which was done for the illegal gold mining, we haven't reached that crescendo yet, and uh, we are still talking to our friends in the media so that they can actually prick more of the public consciousness about this canker, then we can all put pressure on our governments to uh, kind of uh, stem what is happening at the moment. Uh, I must say that uh, it doesn't look good. I guess, you know, the, the one the one actor that, that can also be appealed to is Europe. Um, because as you as you mentioned, you know, as as these economies collapse, a lot of people are migrating and then some of them will end up in Europe as well. Um, do you have any any indications about about what the impact on migration is from, from this collapse of coastal economies? Well, uh, I was in Thailand in February to give a presentation on cycle. And my opening speech, or my first few words, was that uh, all those Europeans in the room should uh, reflect and try to understand why young people are leaving coastal communities, walking through the desert, wanting to get to Europe, because the fishery that uh, drives their economy, that gives them sustenance, is being depleted. And there was need for uh, some concerted action Europe should also put pressure on our governments. Uh, any international bodies that deal with our government should be talking to our president and our vice president and our ministers about uh, this canker. In 2013, when uh, the yellow card was issued to Ghana, Ghana quickly, within a period of one and a half to two years, was able to put systems in place. Uh, I've always told my friends in government that uh, if we do not take time, there would be another yellow card which will make fishermen poorer. So we must begin to uh, take steps to correct some of these things. But I must say that this is a very huge uh, business that people can easily bribe others, give monies here, give all the largesse, and therefore everybody keeps quiet. And I must say that the politicians are the biggest corporates because uh, they have friends out there and they go for the licenses or their proxies go for these licenses. And then they call the Chinese to come in to man their, uh, this, uh, their vessels. When you question, they say, oh, the Chinese are their uh, employees and therefore they report to them. I was with the head of MCS, and uh, we were having discussion when we got to know that uh, one uh, trawler has been arrested in Liberia for illegal fishing. So quickly, whoever was their representative was uh, invited to the office and asked whether he's aware. He said, well, he doesn't even know where that vessel is. And I said, well, if you own a vessel on day-to-day -day basis, you must know that it is in the... Uh, waters of Ghana or Cote d'Ivoire. I mean, there has to be, and this is a guy who says he owns the boat, but he doesn't even know that the boat is in Liberia and has been arrested. So this gives us uh, the, the, the reason to think that uh, those who come forward and say that they are the owners of these boats and therefore they take licenses for it, don't know anything about fisheries. They just are sitting there, and when the Chinese 
uh, make enough money, they give them some pittance, and then uh, they are happy, you know. So th these are some of the problems we face. And it is so opaque that uh, you, you need some, a lot of effort to get behind and find information but because people are not willing to talk because then when they start talking, people are, are going to lose their jobs and all that and the little money that they are making on their side. So we, we have an uh, uphill task. I mean, an uphill task is uh, putting it quite mildly, actually. I mean, it just doesn't... Uh... It doesn't seem like there's a lot of incentive, given the money that's involved here, for politicians to crack down. And the alignment of the interest of greedy politicians with greedy corporate interests, with the the lack of you know a power ability of NGOs and civil society groups like your own to be able to affect change, does suggest that the next two to five years, as you indicated, are, are going to be devastating for the fish stocks. And, and then as a result will be have a consequential impact on the communities that depend on those fish stocks. Um, it, this doesn't look like it's going to end well. Well, our fish stocks are really, really at the lowest of the low. Last year, looking at 70-year statistics collected by the Fisheries Commission, last year was the lowest ever recorded for the small pelagics. And the year before was a little... A little bit above what was recorded last year. So you'll notice that uh, since 1996, thereabout, the stocks have gone down to the extent that what we harvest today is below the 10% uh, of the historical maximum that has ever been caught in our water. So uh, it, it, it is a big problem, and we need more than just CSOs like uh, ours and EJF and others to advocate. We need a lot of pressure from the international community as well on our uh, politicians and the people in high places who have anything to do with this so that uh, we can uh, curb the uh, situation. I mean, you can't go to China and start operating the way they come in here and operate with nonchalance. No, no, it wouldn't be possible. Kofi, Kofi, thank you so much for taking the time. Kofi Egboga is the executive director of Hembampueno, which is our coast. That means in the Fanti dialect, which is a civil society organization fighting really the the noble fight to protect those uh, those fish stocks and the communities and the people that depend on them. Uh, if you aren't just terrified by what's happening in Ghana, you should be. And for those of you sitting in Europe, I think Kofi's warning should be really sobering that these people are not going to sit still when the food stocks run out. They're going to be on the move, and guess where they're going to go? They're going to cross the Mediterranean again. So there's a lot at stake for people far beyond uh, just Ghana on this. And I think a lot of times when we talk about these environmental issues, we say, well, that's somebody else's problem. Um, well, I think what we've seen over the past three or four years is that somebody else's problem far away rapidly becomes your problem. And we're seeing that now in the United States on the southern border as well. So these are global problems, and Kofi is on the front line of that. We really appreciate you taking the time. If people want to follow the work that you are doing and to kind of stay in touch with what uh, Hemon Pueno is doing, what's the best way for them to uh, to get in touch with you? Well, our website is www.yempuano.org. Uh, my email is kofi.agboga at gmail.com or k 
agboga at yempuano.org. Uh, I'm also on Skype, kofi.agboga, so uh, I can be read through uh, these channels, media channels. So fantastic. We'll we'll go ahead and put the links to to all of that. Also, uh, you should check out these the a report that was absolutely fascinating. Stolen at sea: How illegal psycho fishing is fueling the collapse of Ghana's fisheries. We'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Kofi, thank you so much for joining us, and we wish you the best of luck. Thank you so very much. Kobus, last year we were talking about the fact that South Africa was going to be running out of water and Cape Town was within 30 to 45 days of running out of water. We're looking at the levels of deforestation in places like Gabon and, uh, and throughout the kind of the tropical rainforest belt in sub-Saharan Africa. And then we're looking at the spread of the Sahara Desert. There are natural parts of climate change that are happening, natural in the sense that it's nature actually doing it. And then there are the human parts, which is like this illegal fishing is- issue. And then also in Gabon with the illegal logging issue. And too often it seems that the Chinese are the main player in this. Now, this is not to say that the Chinese are the only player in this. And I think that's really important context to keep here. There are French, uh, American, other entities that are also involved. But the Chinese seem to be operating at a scale in Africa that, uh, that dwarfs many of the others, and that's why it's a point of concern. And I think it's one of these issues where the Chinese are missing a huge opportunity for leadership. So what we saw in 2017 when President Xi Jinping banned ivory was an immediate public relations boost for the Chinese. Uh, and now we're seeing two years later uh, elephant stocks going up and, and the population going up. And it's just phenomenal. And people are really giving credit where it's due. On the other hand, on things like timber and on illegal fishing and on pangolins, the Chinese government doesn't seem to be taking any action and they're missing a tremendous opportunity. Do they have the ability to rein all of this in? Probably not. Do they have the ability to do more than other governments? Absolutely. So I, I, I really do hope that people start to recognize that There are some things that we can control about climate change, and there are some things we can't right now. This is definitely one of them that we can. Yes, definitely. Um, I I completely agree with you. And, you know, Xi Jinping has made such a a point of China becoming a a leader on multilateralism and a leader on on issues around environmentalism. Um, So, you know, someone who is willing to lead should lead. Uh, There's a a big vacuum at the moment in in the international community for a a powerful country to really step into that role. Um, And whether it's China, whether it's Europe, uh, I don't think realistically it's probably going to be the United States right now. Um, Then they should, you know. Um, And it's... And and you know part of that part of that work is is cracking down on on these kind of companies, cracking down on these kind of economies, putting pressure on other governments, but part of it is also creating new new ideas about what it means to live well. Um, because I think you know I think we need to put this in context. So, you know we're not only talking about African poverty here. I think part of the part of the the. The the, the the larger dynamic we're seeing is China has only become rich very recently. And I mean, a lot of Chinese people aren't rich and will never become rich. You know, as, as some of the work of Lauren Johnson, who we interviewed last year, um, has shown. Um, so, 
you know, but, but what you have is a large number of Chinese people who are newly more wealthy than they used to be. And so, for, so it's a very natural thing for, for people like that to want to live to live better, you know, to not to not live a life of deprivation like their parents did, and I think then it becomes a big a big thing to show different alternative ways where you know of what living well could mean, ways that don't fall back into old patterns of consumption that will burn out the planet. You know, um, think of ways that you know, for example, that that a plant based lifestyle can be fun and and uh, kind of and luxurious and stylish you know what i mean so so it's not only a thing of of regulation and government um it's also a thing of media and aspiration and you know and and, and putting the quite massive uh you know um, resources of chinese media and chinese discourse and the internet economy in china to to bear on different ways of being in the world and that is also that's a that's a way of of leadership yeah. I mean, it is, but I, I mean, just to push back a little bit on that, I think you'll get, you know, the urban chic bourgeoisie elite in places like Shanghai and Shenzhen who might come around to that. But food is a really powerful force in Chinese culture, as it is in most cultures. And getting people to kind of think about where their food comes from, reducing their consumption of protein and beef and even fish is going to be a very, very hard sell. I mean, on that, on that, and it may happen, but I, I, I don't see that happening anytime soon. What I do see happening is the government really starting to put pressure on a very powerful constituency. The fishing industry, I'm sure, in China, like it is in other countries, uh, probably throws a lot of weight around politically, and it's going to be tough for for the Xi administration to actually do anything against this. My guess is these are powerful folks. And they, they're not just operating in Africa. These are probably multinational that are operating off of in Southeast Asia, in South America, and other places. So this is a big fight that he would have to pick if he was to do something about this. Hard to see him doing that now, given what he's up against with the United States and the trade war there. But it is something that needs to happen because we are going to see fish stocks now in many parts of the world just evaporate. As as Kofi said, we're talking next year. You know, when we talk a lot about environmental issues, sometimes they say, well, in 2035 and 2045, you know, something's going to happen. Literally, we heard it here that it's going to happen next year that certain parts of the Ghanaian fish stock are going to be yeah. gone. Yeah. Incredible. Just absolutely incredible. So anyway, uh, this is part of our ongoing coverage on sustainability issues. We're going to be doing a lot more of this in part because it is so critical to the China-Africa discourse and understanding what it is. And uh, and so we would love to hear what you think. Do you uh, do you, What do you suggest can be done in a case where there's weak governance on the Ghanaian side, a lack of will on the Chinese side, a lack of awareness among Chinese consumers, and, and maybe just apathy from the international community all of that combined together puts Kofi on the front lines almost alone in fighting this. And so what would you recommend need to be done? Practical, actionable solutions. That's what we'd like to hear. If you share some with us, we would be happy to post them up on our uh, social media channels and social media feeds to continue this discussion. You can find me over on LinkedIn. There's a great discussion going there. Just look for Eric Olander. And then 
make sure you sign up for our weekly email newsletter on Friday that goes out and we put a weekend review of all the top stories uh, uh, that basically lets you go into your weekend, you know, with a little bit to read as you as you make your way through Saturday and Sunday. We'd love to have you part of that community as well. So, Co- uh, so Kofi, Kofi, Kobus and I will be back uh, next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. Mm-hmm.